hearts and our consciousness of your attributes, Father, sets the situation aright where we realize our sin and our shortcomings, our failures, our weakness, our depravity, our failings, our rebellion. We realize it all the more in the light of your holiness, your perfection, in your truth, in your glory, in your power, your majesty. Heavenly Father, I pray that as you paint a picture of your beauty for us in our mind's eye, in our souls, as we meditate and contemplate on your scriptures today, that it would so overpower us as to wash away our sin. I pray, Lord, that we would lose our affinity for the things of the flesh and our appetite for the distractions and the evil that easily besets us. And I pray that the altar here at this service today will be strewn with burdens left behind, perhaps ones we didn't even know we carried, as we consider you in your righteousness, in your glory, in your purity, your power, and your truth. Know that you might be glorified, that we might be sanctified, that your kingdom might advance, and we, your emissaries, might shine all the brighter as the day approaches in the light of your glory and of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. What a privilege to open up the scriptures together this morning and to consider the beauties of our Lord. I'd invite you to turn again to 2 Corinthians 13. I'd like to read that section in just a moment. The title of today's message is Sacred Goodbye. Sacred Goodbye. I remember a few years ago preaching through the book of Ephesians, and I don't know exactly how much time we spent in that great epistle, but probably something around two years off and on. And by the time the book wrapped up, I couldn't help but feel a sense of nostalgia, a sort of familiarity with the words there that Paul had written, and I so identified, having thought about the scripture so much and preparing messages to deliver to you, I'd so identified with the church of Ephesus that I felt sad as if Paul was saying goodbye to me personally at the end of that book. I remember one of the final messages in Ephesians being goodbye, Ephesus. And in similar, the sim- a similar situation is here for us at the end of 2 Corinthians, and I kind of can't help but feel that same wistful feeling of wondering what it must have been like to be in the shoes of the first century church in Corinth as they're receiving the closing of this book in this letter and Paul's Paul's last words, as it were. Now, Paul likely didn't know at this time, neither the church, that these would be the last words that he would send to him. As far as we know, they're the last written words to this church that we have in the scriptures before us and probably one of the last things he said to the church. And even though the church didn't know if he would come again, and even though he expressed his intent to come, one thing you do find in Paul's writings, and indeed all the epistles in the New Testament, they're written in such a way so that just in case I never talk to you again, from the standpoint of the author, this will be enough to go on in my absence. And that really is a a theme we should be mindful of as these words are are closing for us in 2 Corinthians, that in the scriptures we find that in the ministry of the church, the apostles, those bearing the name of Christ, seldom wasted a moment 
seldom wasted a word. And indeed, in light of the resurrected Christ and their duty to proclaim him, took into captivity every opportunity, every thought, and nearly every spare moment I imagine that they had before them to declare the glory of God because they recognized with, very, with a lot of clarity, much more than we have today perhaps, that life was indeed short, heaven and hell were both eternal, and they had better make the most of every waking moment because they were not promised tomorrow. That's a little bit of the context of the closing of the book of 2 Corinthians. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when Paul leaves his words to this church, he does so with a sacred, that is holy, meaningful, profound, rich goodbye. He bids them farewell by drawing our attention to the Trinity. In verse 14, Paul says his last words, his last sentence, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The final words of Corinth really are a stinging rebuke, I think, when they're set against the benedictions that are common for us today. I couldn't help but think what we often say to each other when we part ways. And we, just like Paul, not knowing if we'll ever see each other again, but presumptuously we always seem to presume that we will see each other maybe tomorrow, the next day, or the following. So when we bid our adieu, it's common to say, see you later, have a good one, goodbye. Even God bless sometimes is an attempt to be more profound, but can come off, come off somewhat trivial. But imagine those greetings that are so common in contrast to this one. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the love of God, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It seems that when we said our own goodbyes and the last words that we often leave each other in fellowship with, when we set them against this glorious and sacred goodbye in scriptures that in the scriptures that we might have a lot to learn. A lot to learn from the inspired salutations and invocations that really are the apostolic signature, if you will, when Paul closes a letter. Here's a heading for you. Paul's Trinitarian benediction comprises the following. Paul's Trinitarian benediction comprises the following. And four points briefly. Number one, a mystery. Number two, a refrain. Number three, a nutshell. And number four, a prerequisite. Paul, when he says goodbye to the church in Corinth, wrapped up in this last sentence and these last few phrases is a mystery indeed, a deep one, the Trinity itself. It's also a refrain. It's a word and a, a phrases and words that are common to Paul and therefore we should mark as important. You see them often, <coughs> phrases such as this, at the beginning of his letters and at the close of his letters, and we'll touch on a few. Also, there's a really sweetened and condensed form of the gospel here. It's the gospel in a nutshell. It's the truth of the glory of God and the nature of God revealed to us in the redemption of man, summarized in a, one of my new favorite words, compendious nutshell. Compendious means concise and comprehensive. Paul has such a gift at being both precise, concise and precise, and comprehensive. And I often in awestruck at the richness of his sentences 
And this is one of those times for sure. And finally, a prerequisite. In other words, when Paul says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, that is a prerequisite. That is a foundation upon which other conditions might be built. In other words, in verse 11, when Paul says, finally, brothers, rejoice, we find in verse 14 that there really is nothing to celebrate unless the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ was manifest in the experience of this church. And so it goes through that whole list. Comfort one another, aim for restoration, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. All of this was predicated on the grace of of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit being the experience of this church. A benediction is a prayer of blessing that often concludes a time of worship or a time of fellowship in a church. It's a prayer for favor, for care, protection, seeking the blessing of the one who has the power to grant it. And in Paul's words at the end of 2 Corinthians, he's praying that the God in three persons would bless, have favor upon, would care for, would protect, would guide, and would seal his words and his instructions to the church in Corinth. And in this, there is a great mystery. Paul's Trinitarian benediction comprises a mystery. Trinitarian, of course, is the adjective form of the Christian formula for understanding the God of redemption revealed in Scripture. I'm going to do my best to explain some thoughts about the Trinity to you today, but it should be noted that words cannot quite explain the concept that we stretch our minds to wrap around in Scripture how God can be one God and only one God, but reveal himself especially in the act or the economy of redemption, if you will, in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. However, this mystery is essential to affirm because if there wasn't God the Son to be the perfect, holy, final, and sufficient sacrifice for the sin of man, there could be no justification in the eyes of a perfectly righteous, just lawgiver, God the Father. And thirdly, if there was no God the Holy Spirit, if there was no way to connect the interior of the heart of man with the holy and ineffable and unapproachable glory of God, I should say otherwise unapproachable glory of God, then we might have a distant awareness, we might have a terrible reality of imminent judgment, we might have a sense of conviction even, we might have a sense of affirmation of truth, but never have it be applied on the heart level such to set our heart in right standing with God in that we personally experience the indwelling of the righteousness of Almighty God, something that the power of God, the Holy Spirit, can only accomplish. This is the mystery of redemption. This is the mystery of the Trinity. And this is the mystery that Paul refers to again in closing when he says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May you experience the fullness of the Godhead revealed in your church. In each member, in each confessing member of this body of Christ, may may they know the righteousness of God the Father. May they know the redemption of His one and only Son. And may they be connected to that reality by the power of His indwelling Spirit. When I use this word mystery... I want to place that in context as well. The term mystery in Scripture is different than the term we're probably more familiar with in today's vernacular. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul refers to things that he sometimes describes of as mysterious and sometimes describes as wisdom. And these are things that would be lost in the natural mind. They cannot be comprehended by mere reason alone or mere human experience alone. These are things that run deeper than what man, than the sum of what he could design, engineer, accomplish, and even pursue by way of just intellectual knowledge. In 1 Corinthians 2.6, Paul says, Of these concepts, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age, of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a a secret and hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, excuse me, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared For those who love him. And it goes on in verse 10 to say that these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. A mystery is something that is fully understood only upon the revelation of the Spirit illuminating our heart to understand. Some of you might have had an experience with the gospel that you have a hard time explaining exactly and precisely to someone who asks you, well, what does it mean to be a Christian anyway? We tend to use language like, I woke up one morning and it dawned on me. Or suddenly everything fell into place. And it's not as if a professor told you to write something in your notes. It's not as if you got a definition from a theology book that finally rung true with your experience. It's as if the inner part of you, the part that you're least able to put into concrete terms, Connected with the reality of Christ dying for you and Christ's work on Calvary being applied to your heart in a way that you know in your deepest part of you, you will never ultimately doubt again. A mystery is something biblically that is revealed to us, and this is a contextual definition taken from when Paul uses the term, as a truth kept secret from previous generations for ages. Or it could be kept secret from people who have not been visited by the Holy Spirit's power to reveal. Now clearly revealed by the Spirit through means, in this this circumstance, of apostolic disclosure, expounding the essence and the scope of the gospel upon the fullness of time. I'll explain that a little bit more in a moment. In Ephesians chapter 3, there's a reference to a mystery there. 
Paul is talking about something that was a reality that had not dawned on this generation yet. But because of the fullness of the gospel, Christ coming in the fullness of time, and him delivering this revelation of himself and his work through the apostles in their written record, we find this mystery revealed to us in Ephesians 3, verses um, 4 and following. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In verse 6 he says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So you see here some elements of the biblical term mystery. The biblical term mystery is not referring to something that's probably not real or maybe in some fascinating reality or dream world. It could be real. It's not something that's discovered only by an expert. It's not something that is a fantasy pie-in-the-sky notion, but instead it's a truth, a concrete reality that God reveals in His sovereign timing. And in this case, in this example, it was a truth that most Jews would not have realized in the past that there would come a day when the unifying power of the work of Jesus Christ would welcome into the covenanting community of the heirs of Abraham's blessing, not just ethnic Jews, but Gentiles as well. This is the mystery of the Gentiles as fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It was a truth kept secret from most for generations, even for ages. But now through Paul's disclosure, as an apostle equipped by the Spirit to deliver, to decree what God had forever planned in his heart, but now is making manifest to men. Paul is substantiating this truth now in the ears of those listening, expounding the essence and scope of the gospel in the fullness of time. This concept, in fact, is so closely connected to the apostles themselves that we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, that the apostles themselves, those who wrote the Gospels, those who wrote the epistles, like Paul, should be seen as associated with revealing truths like this. Paul says along these lines in 1 Corinthians 4, 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment on me before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commandment from God. So Paul is placing the realm of ultimate judgment in the hands of the one who knows the inner secrets of the heart. Paul says the power to disclose the purposes of the heart is ultimately in the hands of God. But God has given in his power to disclose the privilege of revealing mysteries to the apostles. And they've done it through the written scriptures. And this is how we should regard them. 
in first chapter or four verse first Corinthians chapter four verse one we should regard them as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. A few weeks ago in the last message in this series, we talked about in the close of Second Corinthians how Paul has faith that the titanium plowshare, if you will, that is the specific and specialized tool for tilling up the hard heart of man, the gospel, and it's declared, would sufficient to break through the hard-hearted soil of the hearts of those who populated Corinth. We find that this declaration of the exclusive knowledge of Jesus Christ being the sole tool at Paul's disposal, we find that tool Paul revealing it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll touch on that more later. Paul says he determined to know nothing among them save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So this was the sharp plowshare that was strong enough to till up hearts as hard as the people of Corinth were, who were steeped in their paganism and their idolatry in every manner of debauchery and wickedness. But lest we... Consider the nature of this plowshare to be something simplistic, minimalistic, easy to understand, unsophisticated, naive, or shallow, or one-dimensional. Let us consider that when Paul says, I've rejected the wisdom of the Greeks, and I refuse to placate the appetite for the Jews to show them a sign, I stand on Christ and Him alone. Don't be confused. When Paul says he stands on Christ alone and he stands on the gospel exclusively, this is a deep and profound, mysterious and glorious reality. The things that Paul narrowed his focus, his attention, and limited his faith to and kept as the sole tool in his utility bag for preaching the gospel, declaring the kingdom of God, and bringing the missionary calling forward from one nation to the next, even though Paul limited it to Jesus Christ and him crucified, we shouldn't get the impression that this was something that was simplistic and naive. When Paul says in verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, he's giving us a Trinitarian benediction telling us that the nature of the gospel is something that is rich, deep, mysterious, and amazing. And here we have, in this formulation of his final words to Corinth, the Trinity, God in three persons. And that thought alone, that God in three persons, is a reality of Scripture's declaration of the nature of God, especially as it relates to redemption, As a wellspring of thought to keep the most intelligent among us busy and occupied until they die and beyond. There is so much to consider. There is so much to peruse. There is so much to apply when we think about the Trinity. That a single message is not enough, not even close, and even a lifetime to plumb its depths. I just have three quotes for you to whet your appetite for meditating on the Trinity The first is from my commentary that I often consider, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. The doctrine of the Trinity was not revealed clearly and fully till Christ came. 
And the whole scheme of our redemption was manifest in Him. And we know the holy three-in-one more in their relationship to us than in their mutual relationship to one another. This goes hand-in-hand with Paul's final verse when he prays that this church would know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. When you read the Old Testament time and again, God is declared as one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And so it is forever set in stone that God is one. But as God reveals the detailed aspects of his nature, especially in relationship to making atonement for man, now we start to get an unfolding picture. It's like the curtains of the Godhead are drawn back just a peak, and we can see inside the inner workings, the fellowship, and the relationship of the Godhead, one God in three persons. Herman Bobink says, In the doctrine of the Trinity beats the heart of the whole revelation of God for the redemption of humanity. In the doctrine of the Trinity beats the heart of the whole revelation of God for the redemption of humanity. And as the unfolding story of redemption in Scripture turns another page with the New Testament, and especially in Paul's writings, it's only natural then that we become more acquainted in the sacred writings with the Trinity itself, the mystery of three in one. Finally, B.B. Warfield says of the Trinity, and this is just a framework for understanding the theology of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, He says, when we have said three things then, that there is but one God, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit is each God, and that the Father and the Son and the Spirit is each a distinct person, we have enunciated the doctrine of the Trinity in its completeness. When we have said three things, that there is but one God, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit each is God, And that the Father and the Son and the Spirit each is a distinct person. We have enunciated the doctrine of the Trinity in its completeness. Now we haven't fully grasped the mystery. We haven't wrapped our minds around all that that entails. Not even a fraction. Not even the tip of the iceberg. We haven't applied it into every aspect of life and our experience as the church with one another in our worship before the Lord. But we've at least said what the Scriptures say, that there is but one God, that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, and that each is a distinct person, that is, the Father is a distinct person, the Son is a distinct person, and the Spirit is a distinct person. Herein, we can be at least stating clearly what the Bible reveals about the Trinity. In Paul's Trinitarian benediction, there indeed is a great mystery. There indeed is a disclosure of a God who has revealed himself to us in redemption in his work on the cross as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's amazing indeed. Secondly, in Paul's Trinitarian Trinitarian benediction is comprised a refrain. A refrain is an oft-repeated phrase, uh, something that Paul is fond of saying. 
In the beginning of 2 Corinthians, turn there if you would, Paul tends to set his letters in context. He will deal with specific issues, even specific people. He will call out situations that need correction, rebuke. He will encourage excommunication. He will encourage reconciliation. He will deal with individuals. But he always does so in a context of overarching glory of God. There's such a lesson here. Remember, when we interact with one another in the practical affairs of life, even as we talk about 1 and 2 Corinthians being great examples of the word in practice, practical theology, that we should always keep in mind things like the grace of God, things like the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, so that we couch our application of the Scriptures in a context of worshiping the Lord, remembering His character, and declaring who who He is to ourselves and to others. Paul says, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 1, in his opening verses, after introducing himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, with all saints who are in the whole of Achaia, he introduces the Lord and aspects of Him. He says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Because Paul was mindful of his personal experience with the Trinity, as it were, because he had experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who upon his conversion experience had struck him blind but revealed himself to him and then healed him of his blindness, commissioned him to be an apostle, resurrected him from the death of sin, and gave him the calling to go forward and to be the greatest missionary the church would arguably ever know. Because Paul had experienced personally the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he could then bring this message to the church. Because he was ever mindful that it was the God of mercies and the God of all comfort that comforted him in his affliction, in his trial, in his time of need. Then he had faith and he also had specific direction for a church that was in dire straits under persecution and was suffering under the weight of the society around them and the effects of the hatred, the animosity of a culture that resisted the truth of Jesus Christ. He had faith that they too would be comforted. So this is a refrain for Paul, and I'm saying that we can learn from him. It should be a refrain for us that we would always be mindful of the grace that comes from God, the love, grace from Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, or in Paul's language at the beginning of the letter, that we would be aware in our dealings with one another and in our worship service to the Lord of the grace that God gives us and peace from Him and the comfort that God comforts us. Also in the book of 1 Corinthians, which needs to be taken into context as well when we study the words to Corinth, Paul opens this book by saying, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brothers and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who are in every place, Call upon the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, 
both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And immediately again you see that the common ground and foundation for this letter has been established. If Paul could be assured that they would take the first words, his salutation to them, as well as his last words, or his benediction to them seriously, then the common ground of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the peace that God alone can supply would be the point of contact, the point of reference, and what the church and the apostle would have in common. And it would bring them to the table of communion. And it would bring them to a unity of understanding. And it would grease the skid, if you will, for the gospel and sanctification to take foothold in their life. We should always be careful when we instruct one another and encourage one another to qualify what we say by thinking of the scriptures and then articulating this is not my advice as much as this is something that I have learned from the Lord. If the standard between ourselves of unity and continuity is not our expertise, not our own experience, and if Paul shunned it, how much more are we? Paul had a lot of authority in his experience to speak to if it was a legitimate source of authority, but Paul did not do that. He didn't speak as an expert, writing of his own experience. He spoke as one who has who had had an encounter with the living God and who had received authority delegated to him from the one who had spoken his almighty, immutable, inarguable word. And he was delivering his counsel in light of that word. Indeed, he was delivering the word of God to the churches. And we see this in the context of his refrains as he opens and closes his letter. In the closing of 1 Corinthians, we find refrains like this again. I, verse 21, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. There's a great doxology in the close of Romans. And I'll just close this section to highlight these refrains of Paul that he repeats in 2 Corinthians by reading these few verses, Romans 16, verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ, amen. And there again you see those two themes that we began this message with. Mystery and Paul's refrain of the grace and the Godhead coming together. There's the mystery that Paul declares which has been kept secret for long ages, revealed and has been now disclosed through the prophetic writings as well as it's being made known to them and to all nations through his ministry and the apostles, and is there for a purpose to bring about obedience to the faith. And all this is not for Paul's glory, not for kudos to him and success for his ministry, to bolster his resume or to promote his book, but instead to promote the glory of the only wise God, to him be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul's benedictions. In Paul's opening and closing themes of his book, are rich with the mystery of the gospel and the Godhead, 
And they are a refrain. They are a chorus, if you will, if you think of Paul's work as a piece of music. The score, the melodic line, the chorus that is constantly coming to the fore again and again. That really sets the tone of his instructions to the church. Remember the glory of God in the work of redemption. Think about it. Let your mind be saturated with thoughts high and holy like these. Let your instructions in interaction one to another come out of a context of meditating on the work and the glory of God. Point number three, Paul's Trinitarian benediction comprises a nutshell or a summary of the gospel. Again, in 2 Corinthians, at the close of the book, when Paul gives his Trinitarian benediction, By saying the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He's saying in a sentence what he's expounded and expanded previously in his letters. And I'd like to turn you to one of these moments in the first letter to the church of Corinth. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Following the introduction that I read to you just moments before. It doesn't take too long for Paul to begin to expand on the work of the Godhead in the, in the glorious truths of salvation. We get to chapter 1, verse 26. He begins to expand on the nature of God and the redemption of man by saying, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Prior to this, as against what man would conceive and promote, he has said, where is the one who is wise in verse 20? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Then he goes on to describe what the world would call foolishness, but indeed is the ingenious mystery of the gospel and the Trinity revealed in the work of salvation. First of all, he has said in verse 27 that there is a God. We can conceive in Paul's explanation here that these aspects can be attached to the first person of the Godhead, God the Father. God chose, God the Father chose, verse 27, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Again, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Verse 29 tells us, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chose, God chose, God chose against popular opinion and suggestions in the box of the wisdom of man, putting in prayers and petitions that would instruct the Holy One in how we would conceive of salvation, prefer He visit us, and do things our way for our benefit on our terms for our glory. In spite of what man would beg and plead and choose and actually declare as terms for his own accepting God, God for God does not listen to any of those because he is sovereign and supreme and is jealous for his glory. He chooses the way. He chooses the life. He alone is the door. He alone is the one who chooses the low and despised and the weak things of the world to confound the wise. He alone is the one that turns the wisdom of this world on its head. He alone is the one who works in what man would call unconventional means for the purposes of his great name and his great glory. And this has been the pattern all through Scripture. Recently on Wednesday night, we were going over a debate between a humanist, atheist, agnostic God-hater, Christopher Hitchens, and an Orthodox Christian preacher, Douglas Wilson. So these two men went head-to-head, and the video was aptly titled Collision. And there was one point in the debate where the atheist God-hater thought he was making a great point by saying, if the God of Scripture is really the King of Kings, if He is really God, why would He reveal Himself to a semi-literate, small, nomadic tribe in a desert corner of the Middle East? Why would He do that? When over here, a thousand or two miles Away, you have highly developed Eastern society, which whatever the Chinese language, by man's terms of civilization, there are far more sophisticated people, far more deserving of the great truths of the God revealed. You're asking me to believe this incredulous fabrication that the primitive ideas of religion that a semi-nomadic tribe received in a corner of the Middle East is the truth for all mankind? And obviously, his implied question is, if God is so sovereign and great, why would he do such a thing? The answer is right here. It's folly to the Gentiles. It's something that men call foolishness. But God, in his wisdom, chose. God says right in his instructions in Deuteronomy, the reason why he chose the people of God. He said, I chose you because you were weak and because you were small in number. Why? Because when I do mighty works... For my glory and namesake on your behalf. When I deliver the most sophisticated thoughts through my written word through the most unlikely people group, it will shine for my glory and my glory alone. No man will glory in my presence. God never suffers competitors for his glory. God will not suffer that man in his pompous arrogance and self-appointed wisdom, prominence, and accolades Show him up by saying, I have a better way, and I'll do it my way. God indeed chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God the Father indeed chose what was low and despised in this world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And if this is something too foolish for the wise in his own eyes to reject, he will die in his rebellious rejection of the only hope for salvation 
and he will be judged justly and eternally in hell. Because he never humbled himself before the God who is inscrutably wise. Because he never bowed before the authority and the lordship of a God who chooses sovereignly how and at what time and under what conditions he will reveal his truth. And we think about the mystery of Paul's Trinitarian benediction. Never forget the sovereign authority of Father God to plan, to predestine, to foreknow, to choose, to glorify himself in exalting the weak and in shaming the proud. What did Mary say upon the revelation that she, an unlikely out, you know, young woman, would receive the high and holy call to be the mother of Christ himself? She said, be it unto me according to thy word. And then she began to sing a song we call the Magnificat that exalted God for raising up the humble and tearing down the proud. So if you don't think much of yourself today, that's a good thing. If you ever have that thought when you're contemplating your own salvation, how is it, Lord, that you chose me? A repetitive sinner, a broken man, a complete failure, a track record of unworthiness par excellence. That is the best condition that we can possibly wish for, to be sensitive, humble, and receptive to the message of a sovereign God and a son that redeems, the Holy Spirit that applies, the truth of a God who glorifies himself in humbling man and making himself known through ransoming him from sure and certain destruction. When Paul says in the end of 2 Corinthians, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God be with you, he's speaking of a love of God expounded before that is delivered on terms of his sovereign choosing. Secondly, he's speaking of a source of life in Jesus Christ, as he said in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. He, Jesus, is the source of your life. Sorry, he, the Father, is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This God who chose the weak, the low and despised, the God who chose on these conditions whom he might save for his glory and namesake has done so by means of his son Jesus Christ, of whom it is said here was made our, he was made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. And therefore, we boast only in our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This Trinitarian nutshell at the close of 2 Corinthians, within it is packed this truth that God sovereignly chooses and God sovereignly saves. And he does so by making Jesus Christ his son, our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, 
and our redemption. And then finally, how is this applied to our hearts as we see the work of the Trinity expanded in this section? Well, here in verse 6, Paul says that though these words are simple, though they are profound, and though they are a rejection of the intellectual standards of the day, they are not without mystery. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden, hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And then notice in verse 10, this is how it's applied to our hearts. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts? except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual Later it says in verse 16, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. These are the amazing truths of the work of Christ in redemption. As Bobbing says, In the doctrine of the Trinity beats the heart of the whole revelation of God for the redemption of humanity. And as the other commentary cited declared that the Trinity in past and previous ages and to men of old was not so clearly revealed because it required the fullness of Christ come, and now the whole scheme of our redemption is manifest in Him. We know the holy three in one more in their relationship to us than in their mutual relationship to each other while it remains a mystery how God can be three in one. One thing is certain, that God sovereignly chose and He provided the sacrifice for our sins in Jesus Christ, and He applied it to our heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit who searches the inner recesses of God and now sovereignly through unity in Him resides in us is the one that can communicate the truth of God's holiness to us. The one who brings redemption home to roost in the heart and the soul of the believer. Paul's Trinitarian benediction contains this gospel in a nutshell. These glorious overflowing truths. Now, the last thing to leave you with in this section is a note that I passed over in chapter 2, verse 3. And it answers this question. What should and will attend the preaching and the value of this doctrine if it is well attended to within the church? Paul answers this by saying, Chapter 2, verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and message were not with the plausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. These thoughts ought to be ones that inspire within us a sense of awesome reverence, overflowing worship that should proceed from our heart and soul, proportionally greater measure 
as we consider the mystery of the Trinity and the work of Christ, the Father, and the Spirit in redemption. These meditations for Paul produced in him a weakness and a fear and much trembling. And Paul was so concerned to communicate this depth and profound mystery to the church so that they would stop arguing about wicked, little, trivial, dumb things. That they would leave their selfish reasons to be divided behind. That they would reconcile with one another. That they would leave their sin and their sin nature and their longing for the things of this world and their, their, affection that, their affections that would drive them away from the holiness of God and back to their old life and their sins. Paul knew that a meditation of the glory of God and the work of the nature of God in redemption itself would produce in them what it produced in him, a weakness of fear and trembling. A weakness that would admit that there was nothing in and of himself that gave him anything by way of strength or authority to accomplish what God alone had done. And a fear, a fear of reverence and respect at the alternative, especially a terror that we would ever find a refuge anywhere else than on the firm foundation in a rock, Jesus Christ. A kind of trembling awareness of our salvation so that we never lose that feeling of relief and salvation and rescue at the very moment being pulled back from the brink of hell. And finally, and in closing, Paul's Trinitarian benediction comprises a prerequisite. Turn back with me to the end of 2 Corinthians. This builds on what I've just been saying. But in order for what Paul wished to be the situation in Corinth, to be the reality and to be evident there in increasing measure, all these things that he had preached must be valued and taken to heart. When Paul says in 13.11 of 2 Corinthians, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with the holy kiss. All the saints greet you. All those things are only possible in a real, God-glorifying, manifest degree if the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ was valued and realized among them. If the love of God was so treasured in their hearts that they overflowed in praise and in interaction between one another as a result of meditating on God's love for them. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be with them all. Now I'd have you notice here that these ideals that Paul is looking for in the church are popular today. I mean, how many of us have seen the bumper stickers that celebrate the idea of world peace or love, a sort of communion, a sort of laying down of arms? I was listening to some podcast this week about the United Nations and its vision, for instance, and so I got curious and I downloaded a few words. Listen to this vision. This is the vision of the United Nations. We, the people of the United Nations, determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind, to reaffirm faith and fundamental human rights and the dignity and worth of the human person and the equal rights of men and women of nations large and small to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties 
and other such sources of international law can be maintained to promote social progress, better standards of life, larger freedom, blah, 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 blah. These platitudes of idealism spew forth from humanistic sources all over the place. Everyone aims for restoration almost. Everyone has this idea of peace and love and harmony and the brotherhood of man. Comfort one another, agree with one another. Can't we all get along? Peace, love. But Paul is very clear in in this section that all these very popular ideals are absolutely meaningless and an absolutely futile goal if they are not built on the prerequisite affirmed glory of God. If we do not value and promote the name and work of Christ, there can be and will be no restoration, no comfort, no agreement, no peace, no love between men. There might be pretentious, Babylonish attempts. There might be certain seasons where it seems like men have found a reason to get along, but ultimately no cure. I mentioned the United Nations. United Nations has sat tacitly by during more than one genocide. Do you remember the movie Hotel Rwanda? That was the American version documenting the great atrocity in one of these third world nations where whole people groups are slaughtered by millions of machetes ordered from China, sitting in warehouses, people within the UN letting people know, whistleblowers, there's going to be a genocide. There's good reason why they're stalking millions of machetes. Blind eyes, people with authority do nothing. American version of the UN's response to that atrocity and the situations that preceded it, there was a European version, sometimes other nations get the facts a little bit more accurately. But the name of the documentary that Europe produced was called Shooting Dogs. And Shooting Dogs was the name of that film that came from a quote of a UN worker when they stood tacitly by as men slaughtered men. And they were asked, why did you not take arms against this atrocity? And the worker said, we only have clearance to shoot the dogs of the cor- that eat the corpses after the people are dead. And that's to illustrate to you that if there's another power or another authority set up to bring about love, grace, fellowship, joy, restoration, comfort, agreement, and peace that is built on a false foundation, in the end, it leads to death. And in the end, it will not succeed. Only Christ will be the foundation for this church to continue in harmony with one another. Without the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the church would continue to backbite and to fall into their sins of quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And so will this wicked world. But Paul's Trinitarian benediction stands for the church in Corinth, for providence today, and for this whole world over. May our prayer for the plight of man be, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And as it is with us, so it will be that by increasing measure we will enjoy a restoration, a comfort, an agreement, 
a peace, a love, and a holiness that will endure between us that will glorify the Lord and it will stand as a sacrifice worthy of offering to Him. In closing and transitioning to communion this morning, other translations of this passage instead of fellowship have used the word communion in verse 14 when Paul says, let the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I'm told it can also be translated, may the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And today as we take communion together, I'm reminded that it is a feast of fellowship that we're remembering where Jesus had with his disciples at that time. There was one who left the feast, Judas. But those who stayed and remained, the picture there was that all who communed at the table of Christ's broken body and shed blood have a unity with him, a union with him, a fellowship with him, a relationship with him, a future with him, a hope with him, promises with him, eternal life with him. And we remember that today. Jesus commissioned this institution to continue so long as he tarries. And we in our obedience today are fellowshipping with him and with each other in communion. And it is a picture in our experience of what we've been studying today. That because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his body being broken, in his blood being shed, that a sovereign God chose to shed abroad in our, in our hearts because of his love with which he first loved us, we can have fellowship, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with the Lord and with each other. Let's transition in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths in Scripture that are so glorious before us on the page. I pray, Lord, that as we take communion today, that in that act, Lord, it would preach the gospel to our souls, that we would remember the work of the Trinity in our redemption, that we would remember and proclaim that Jesus Christ has come and upon his work and for his name is established all hope, any hope in the salvation of mankind. I pray for those of us who have found the rock of our salvation in Jesus Christ, that we would be encouraged and emboldened as we take this meal together. And that we would also, Lord, be more unified with one another, recognizing that the context of our unity is our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers in this room, Lord Jesus, will feel, Lord, estranged from you, perhaps for good reason, because they've never placed their faith in you. I pray that they would see a picture of the cross in today's service, humble themselves and repent of their wickedness, and place their faith in Christ's atoning work alone for their salvation. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.